Good morning, my fellow Bible students. Good to see you this morning. Hope you're having a good week. Thanksgiving's coming up. Then Christmas. Started your Christmas shopping yet? Better be thinking about it. She's always expecting you to have a good one. Better have one. You remember that Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, is responding primarily to two things. One is a report that he has about what's going on from Chloe's household. And that takes you up through the first six chapters. And then in chapter 7, he seems to begin to give answer to a letter that they've written him. And the letter they've written him, in some ways, is a reaction to the first letter he wrote them. We don't have his first letter. Remember, 1 Corinthians is actually 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is actually 4 Corinthians, remember? So, what's really interesting about 1 Corinthians studies is that scholars are always trying to figure out what did that letter say from the Corinthians? What is Paul responding to? And then they're also trying to figure out what did Paul say to them in the first place? And so... There's a lot of speculation about what went on in those first two communications that leads to this letter. Sometimes it's fairly obvious, sometimes it's not. And so as you're trying to figure out what this letter means, you have to go back in your mind and try to figure out what was going on in Corinth. 1 Corinthians is probably the most dramatic example of ad hoc communications in Paul's epistles. Uh, now, Romans is ad hoc also. The ad hoc just means to that. So it just means it's to a particular situation. Romans was to a particular situation also. We'll talk about that some other time. However, Romans is usually seen as this grand uh, presentation of the gospel and its implications around the world. Uh, but 1 Corinthians, everybody can see the ad hoc nature of 1 Corinthians. I mean, every chapter is just full of Paul's immediate response to a specific situation in Corinth. And that's the reason it's so helpful for us guys because we have situations we'd like God's answer to also, and we find a lot of it right here in this ad hoc letter where Paul is specifically addressing specific situations. Now, the section we're going to enter, chapters 8, 9, and 10, first verse of chapter 11, but it's basically 8, 9, and 10, all hang together as a unit. Let me try to give the background of what most scholars believe was actually going on. And we can speculate a little bit about what they must have been saying to each other before we get 1 Corinthians. That leads to Paul's comments here. Understand that in the pagan world, pagan worship and ideology suffused everything in the culture. You just couldn't get away from it. It was everywhere, including your business. Let me explain. There are temples in all the major cities. And of course, I've said to you that if you go into, the, if you go into Corinth today, and fortunately there's not another city on top of Corinth, you've just got ancient Corinth, so you can just dig it up and there it is. And you don't have to go underneath the city streets to get it. It's, it's out in the country now. But ancient Corinth was a huge city. And if you go there, you'll, you'll find the great tem- temple of Apollo, sitting up on one of the major hills in the city of Corinth. And around that temple, just to the side of it, you'll find they've dug out 
some of the stores, the marketplaces. And if, if you read uh, Leon Morris's commentary, you saw a little schematic that he's provided of how temples were set up. You had the temple where the sacrifices were offered to the gods, and then you had little rooms like dining rooms around the place of the, of the altar and the courtyard. So, here's what would happen. You would come to the temple with a sacrifice. The sacrifice would be ritually prepared, slaughtered. They would check the entrails because there were certain magical signs that they would discern from the way that the entrails were ordered in the animal. Then they would offer the meat to the god and consume some of the meat right there on the altar. The rest of it would be uh, served at these meals, these festival meals in these dining rooms. The leftover from that would be sold in the markets right next to the temple. And that's where you would go, to the, just like going to the butcher to get your meat. So when you bought meat in the grocery store, uh, you didn't know but what it had already been offered to an idol. Or it was the leftovers and you didn't know which. When you went to the restaurant, they were almost all tied in with temple worship. That's where the restaurants were. They were in the temples. And if you happened to be, say, a physician in the first century, you had a physician's guild, and usually the guild had its own god. And so when you had your medical meetings, you would go to the temple of your guild's god and have your medical society meeting in the temple restaurant. So if you were, especially if you were successful, and if you were in what we today would call the professional class, your whole life was just suffused with idolatrous practices. There was no way to avoid it. The whole economy was built around it. So you got this little group of Christians who are trying to sort all this out. Do, how do we, can we just separate ourselves from the world that we live in? Is that the only solution? Go build a Christian city somewhere? Or is there some way we can actually live in Corinth as faithful followers of Jesus and somehow exegete this society we live in and figure out where we connect with it and where we don't connect with it? So there are all kinds of issues. We've got them today too. And so I hope it's helpful for us to go through and see how Paul exegetes this very difficult situation for them and helps them see where you have to draw a line in the sand where you have to be really different, where you have to suffer the scorn of the world, and where you need to learn to get along and that it's not a major theological issue. And maybe something you don't prefer, but something that you don't stand up and, and take Custer's last stand on. Paul's going to help us see how you exegete your own culture and live like faithful Christians without having to create the Christian city. Of course, we know now, anyone who tries to build a Christian city as soon as you join it, it's not going to be Christian anymore. <laughs> so why try? You can't do it. We live in this world and we, we all share fallen flesh and the whole world is the city of man and that's just as good as we can do. And the city of God is His church. And His church doesn't have a geopolitical specificity. We're scattered throughout all the cities of man. So let's take a look at it, and before we do, we'll look at the outline I've given you, because uh, here's, in these three chapters, 
The traditional interpretation of these three chapters is that Paul starts off in chapter 8 talking about the meat in the marketplace. See, there are two issues. The first issue is, should I eat in one of the restaurants in the temple? Should I join a, a, should I join a festival meal in a temple? That's issue number one. Issue number two is, should I go to the meat market and buy meat there and eat it in my house if it was offered to an idol? So you have two issues. The traditional argument was that chapter 8 is addressing the issue of the meat offered uh, the meat sold in the market. Market meat. He picks up the argument again in chapter 10. And then if you'll look in chapter 10 with me for just a moment, uh, look at verse 14. The traditional argument was here Paul then for the first time picks up the argument about the festival meals. And he says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. And he goes on to say that you can't, sit at the table of the Lord in the Lord's Supper and also drink the cup of demons, verse 21. So there he's talking about, they say, the festival meals. So the traditional argument was, first part of Paul's argument, he's going to talk about the freedom that we have to buy market meat, but you need to be careful not to cause your brother to stumble. And he talks about that historic stumbling block principle. And then when you get to the middle of chapter 10, he picks up the argument about the festival meals. Gordon Fee and his commentaries help me realize that's probably not exactly what's going on. And here's the reason. Let me just give you one major reason. If you'll look in chapter 8, verse 10, Paul says here, For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? So he mentions there that they are eating in idols' temple. So Fee is saying, chapter 8 then can't just be about buying market meat. So I want you to see that, if you look at the outline I've provided here for you, in chapter 8, he's talking about eating in the temples, not just buying market meat. We'll see why this is important as we go through. I just want you to get the framework of his argument. And he's showing how doing that contradicts Christian love. In other words, he's going to show how it sets a bad example for other people. And we'll see what a danger that is. Then in chapter 9, we'll explain today why he launches into chapter 9 about his own example and how he does something with some people and how he does some other things with different people and why he suspends his own rights that he's free to claim for the sake of the gospel. Paul uses his own life as an illustration in chapter 9. We'll come back to that. Then notice in chapter 10 that he is showing that eating in the temples contradicts Christian worship. There he's showing us that when we eat in the temple feasts, we're not only setting a bad example for other people and tripping them up, but now we're contradicting our own commitment to worship God alone. So really in both 8 and ten, first half of 10, he's talking about whether we should participate in the temple restaurants. Then you'll see in a D there that he then goes on to say in chapter 10 verse 23, we are free to eat marketplace meat. 
And that's where he takes up the issue of marketplace meat and qualifies that statement. You're free to do it, but be careful how you do it so that you don't trip somebody else up. And that's where the stumbling block principle comes in with respect to what we call things indifferent, adiaphora, things indifferent. That meat is indifferent. So we're not going to worry about it. But if somebody else is sensitive about it, we're not going to trip them up. So I think Fee is right that the thrust of the first two and a half chapters is really talking about the bigger issue of whether we should be participating in these religious meals of somebody else's religion. And then at the very end, he comes to the lesser issue of should you go to the meat market and buy meat there that could possibly have been offered to an idol. So now we'll apply this to ourselves because obviously we don't have quite the same situation, do we? But we have parallel situations we'll talk about this week and next. So let's begin by looking at chapter 8. And here we're going to see the, the whole idea is that love triumphs over knowledge. And I think you'll see why we're, why we're, we're labeling it this way. Because... The Apostle Paul is going to make a very important theological, doxological argument about your behavior. But he's going to start with how that behavior affects other people. So you've got two major arguments now he's making against eating in those restaurants. The first one is about your love to your brothers. And you're hurting other people when you do it. And secondly, which is the more important principle you're contradicting your worship of God, which is the most important thing in your life. So he starts with the less uh, secondary important issue and then goes to the primary one of your worship. But he starts with love. And he shows them how their theological knowledge is trumped by the commandment to love your brother as Christ has loved you. So let's look now at chapter 8. Now concerning, and you know the word now concerning means we're taking up another issue in the letter. You get now concerning six times from 1 Corinthians 7, 1 to chapter 16, six times. So he's answering six major questions they pose to him. And this would be the, the third one. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed 
the brother for whom Christ died? Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I'll never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Okay. Love triumphs over knowledge. Notice in verses 1 through 3 that knowledge minus love equals arrogance. What the Corinthians were saying back to Paul, they said they probably said something like this. Paul, in your letter to us, you said we're not supposed to eat in these restaurants because they are inevitably, inextricably connected with temple worship. They're in the very confines of the temple. It's all part of the act of sacrifice itself. The meal is the consummating event, and so we shouldn't participate in it. But let me tell you something, Paul. God's given us knowledge. We know that there's only one God. Furthermore, we know that these, gods don't even, these, these godlings don't even exist. They're nothing. They're nothing to us. So we, we have this special knowledge. And Paul says, look, uh, we know that, and then it appears here, and of course, you know, this is not in the Greek language. It's the English translation that's speculating here. We put it in quotes. All of us possess knowledge. That's their quote. The, the in, translators here are saying, it appears as though Paul is quoting them. All of us possess this knowledge. And, he, and Paul is granting. Now concerning what, what you say, all possess knowledge. Great. And then Paul says to them, let me tell you something about knowledge. It puffs up. Love builds up. So he's saying, knowledge that's useful, that comes filtered through brotherly love, will be for the benefit of your brother. Knowledge without love is to arrogate to yourself claims that you have no right to make about yourself. Your knowledge, if it's not in the service of other people, is to make yourself look very bright, very powerful, very influential. It's to puff you up. You have to be very careful with your knowledge, with your graduate degrees, with all the books that you've read, with all the things that you know about history and philosophy. You have to be very careful about that. If, you know, we probably all have people that come to mind. I'm thinking about someone I know who's very bright and very well read. And I just notice that you don't get his knowledge from him unless he's in company with someone who can benefit from it. I've been around him enough with different sorts of groups that if you'll just watch him operate, he's a, he's a strong believer, if you watch him operate, he'll talk on one level with people about things that they sort of hold in common. Then you get him with a very academic group and boy, it starts to come out. All of his knowledge of medieval theology and church history is overwhelming. But when he's with people like me, he's down here on the lower shelf. And you, you appreciate so much someone who's very careful with their knowledge. Not to try to intimidate, not to humiliate, not to embarrass, not to depress. It's very depressing sometimes when you realize how little you know around some people. But someone who has love as well as knowledge, they'll always choose the venue in which they share their knowledge. Paul is saying, look, knowledge is a real thing, and it usually just puffs up the one who knows it. But if you have love, it will build up the person, the other person. And then he goes on to show them how this is. He says, first of all, we don't know as much as we think. He says in verse 2, if anyone imagines that he knows something, 
He does not yet know as he ought to know. He's basically saying to us, a little bit of knowledge is dangerous. Those of you in the medical field know that. The legal field, you know that. A little bit of knowledge can get you in a lot of trouble. That's the reason that in some of your specialties, you take a decade to train yourselves. If, if after you get your medical degree, you go, start going out, performing all these surgeries, you're going to have some dead people in the, in the OR. You need years and years to learn all the things that you didn't learn in medical school. And there are a lot of things you didn't learn in medical school. You learn it later. So he's saying, one of the problems that you have with your knowledge is that you just think you have a lot. An arrogant person thinks they have a lot. A humble person knows that the little bit of knowledge that he has has just simply revealed to him how little he knows. And you've had that experience, haven't you? The higher you go through the educational process, the more vast you realize the whole field is and what a little idiot you are the more you study. And Paul is saying, your problem is you don't know as much as you think you know. Um, I, remember, <laughs> I remember myself, uh, in, <laughs> this, is, this is a good illustration of what we're talking about. I was in engineering school. My undergraduate degree was in electrical engineering. Did me a whole lot of good, didn't it? Uh, so I remember after about my second year of engineering school, uh, electrical engineering, I, I was home and my mother was having problems with her vacuum cleaner. She said, son, can you fix this for me? I said, oh, no problem. You know, I know a lot about electricity now. So, well, long story short, 30 minutes later, I handed the whole thing back to her in a bucket. Uh, we don't know as much as we think we know. Secondly, Paul says, we know only because we're known. He says, real knowledge comes from loving God. And loving God comes from being loved by God. He said, this is where real knowledge is. It comes from love. And love comes down from heaven. In other words, we're all completely dependent upon the Lord and His grace toward us to have real knowledge that builds other people up. So he's saying, this knowledge you think you've developed and you're wiping people out right and left, that is not from the Lord. Uh, We'll know that when you have real spiritual knowledge is when your life is building other people up around you. That's the test for real knowledge knowledge. We know only because we're known. We know only because we're known. We know something that's useful only because we realize it's come from God's love for us. And therefore, the way we're going to use our knowledge is in love for other people. Thirdly, notice in verses 4-6, through six, Paul's, Paul is saying, you think or we think our knowledge sets us free. And there's a sense, of course, in which it does. Jesus says in John 8.32, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Set you free from condemnation. Set you free from the bondage of traditions and rituals and man-made laws. Set you free from uh, the performance trap. The truth sets you free from all kinds of things. But truth never sets you free from loving your neighbor. The truth never sets you free from honoring God. The truth sets you free in order to love your neighbor and in order to love God. And they were saying, hey, we've got this special knowledge. We can go anywhere and do anything. And there are some today in our culture who claim to be Christians who say, we love the Lord, but we don't think there's any sense in having to go to church. We don't think that our sexual life makes that much difference. It's it's just a matter of this world. It's all passing away anyway. It doesn't really matter to anyone. And we're not hurting anybody. We have this knowledge. We know that we're saved. 
and therefore we can do anything we want to with immunity. That's basically what they're saying here. We have this knowledge. We know. We're not, we go to those festivals, but don't think for a minute that we think that these gods exist or that we're worshiping them. No, no, we're orthodox. We're worshiping God alone. That's the argument they're making. Paul says you think your knowledge sets you free from your moral obligations. Wrong. And here is the knowledge they had. In verse 4, you see, first of all, A, idols have no substance. Paul says, therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that, and he quotes them, an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. That's what they were probably saying in their letter to him. We know that idols have no, exi- no substance, no existence. We know that there's no God but Jehovah. And Paul's saying, great, good theology. But good theology then doesn't mean you do whatever the heck you want to. Good theology leads you to do things that are loving and useful for your neighbor and glorifying to God. And then the second thing they, they said was that God is the only true God. And good, he says, great, you got it. You're telling me that that idols don't exist really, so they don't tempt you, you're not worshiping them when you go to those restaurant meals, great. But just for a moment, leave your finger there and turn over a couple of pages, and look, or one page, look at 1 Corinthians 10. When we get to the argument about fleeing idolatry, look at verse 20. 1 Corinthians 10, 20. No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, look at this, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. So now turn back. Here's what Paul is saying. Hey, look, it's true. God, the, the, the idols have no substance. They don't exist. The gods that other religions create are man-made creations. They don't really exist as gods. So I'm glad you know that. But that's only half the truth. Here's the other half. Even though the idols don't exist, demons do exist. And demons use what doesn't exist to trip you up into leading people astray and offering false worship. So he says, great, you've got some good knowledge there, boys. You're monotheistic. Congratulations. But your understanding, your spiritual understanding of the dangers of the culture you're living in are not really adequate for your performance as a Christian in the culture. Sure, these other gods and these other, these other lifestyles and these other ways of thinking are nothing. And yet, they're demonic in their real spiritual power and source. So, good. We think our knowledge sets us free where actually he's going to show us that knowledge sets us free to serve. Now look at verses 7-13 through 13, through the end of this chapter. And the second major point Paul is making is that love protects our brother's conscience. He's showing that knowledge without love leads to arrogance. But knowledge with love will protect our brother's conscience. We're concerned not only about our Christian liberty, but about the liberty of the church, the liberty of everybody in it. And it's made up of a number of people who think and feel things very differently from yourself. And he says here in verse 7, first of all, realize 
Some believers have weak consciences. Now, Paul is an expert at this. He could have used the words weak and strong, I guess, in opposite directions. I'm glad he used it this way. I think it's more accurate. But you see, he's actually complimenting them. Oh, so you have such a strong conscience. Great. Uh, you, you have such a strong Christian theology that you're just free as a bird. You don't, have, you don't have a guilt conscience. You don't struggle with self-condemnation. Good for you, a really strong conscience. But let's talk a minute about those with a weak conscience. And he says that your life in this world must take into account the other consciences around you, even though you seem to be liberated. And, of course, we'll come back to this next week, but Romans 14 and the early part of 15 is a classic teaching on how we must get along as strong consciences and weak consciences within the same church together. That we both must honor each other. And Paul addresses both the strong and the weak, explaining how they're to live together. For example... Some with a weak conscience would say, you know, I just don't think anybody should touch alcohol. If they love the Lord, you shouldn't touch this stuff. It's just that liquor just gets you all liquored up and leads to bad things and nobody should, should drink. And they have a weak conscience in the sense that they believe if they were to sip alcohol, they've sinned against God. Others have a very strong conscience where they're saying, no, the Bible, the Bible is the Word of God. Our conscience is bound to the Bible alone. The Bible doesn't say you should not drink a drop of liquor or uh, not have a drop of wine, let's say. And so we're free. Absolutely no guilt in my conscience at all in drinking. So if you have a strong conscience, great. The Bible does say something about being inebriated. So, you know, enjoy your one glass of wine. Uh, You have something in the Bible about being inebriated, but not about drinking wine. And yet, if someone with a weak conscience is in your presence, what do you do? Well, Paul is basically going to teach these guys with a strong conscience. You must be sure that you do nothing to tempt the other person with a weak conscience to violate his own conscience. It's not that your conscience is not free to do what you want to do. It's not even that you can't do it in their presence. Although you must, you must be careful. The issue is, are you tempting them to violate their own conscience? Why is that so dangerous? Well, you'll see some very strong language here. In number 2, verses 8 through 13, Paul is teaching them food, okay, doesn't matter. It's a matter of indifference. But brothers do matter. And you'll see the word brother four times in the text. I've underlined it in your outline. He speaks of these folks as our brothers for whom Christ died. So if they violate their conscience, you are leading to their destruction. Why? Conscience is very important. Your conscience is not yet fully developed. But whatever conscience you have, it's very important that you keep it. And Paul is very strong about this himself. He, he, you know, he says in 1 Corinthians 4... Look, ultimately, I don't judge myself. God alone judges me. So my conscience does not decide whether I'm going to heaven or not. God alone decides that. So my conscience is not my Lord. God is my Lord. However, on several occasions, Paul makes a big point of his conscience being clear. So even though his conscience is not perfect, 
He keeps the conscience he has. It is your moral compass. So the first thing about a conscience is you've got to keep it. And that's the reason that historically in this country, largely coming from our our Christian background, in the way that we think about civil society, we've always allowed for conscientious objectors. You You can't ask a pacifist to go to war. Why? You're destroying him. You're telling him to violate his own conscience. Now the problem with some of the conscientious objectors is that they they weren't willing to suffer the consequences of their conscientious objection. So if you are a conscientious objector, it's your duty to follow your conscience to your death. But it's our duty out of love not to put you in a situation where you're being tempted to violate your conscience. So the first thing about your conscience is you must keep it. Secondly, you must develop it. So if you have a weak conscience, hey, come on, wouldn't it be nice to have a strong conscience? Let us work with you. Let us teach you. And I mentioned the issue of alcohol. I do need to teach you. If I'm a Bible teacher, I need to teach you. Lighten up. Reconsider your conscientious point of view. And the reason is, you first of all, for your sake, you need to know the liberties that you enjoy in Christ. And secondly, if you're not really careful, you're going to be judging your brother wrongly according to man-made standards and traditions and not the biblical ethic. The reason that I don't drink is so that I can make that speech. And those with a weak conscience don't think I'm making special pleading so they'll let me drink. So I just get myself out of that battle and I want to talk to the people with a weak conscience and say, you really need to reconsider your conscience. Is it biblical? Have you really bound your conscience to the Word of God? Now, of course, in the Protestant Reformation, you know that Luther made this, this comment when he was before the Diet of Worms. He said it's a very dangerous thing to break conscience when he was being asked to recant. And then he said, my conscience is bound to the Word of God. Now, you could say Luther was wrong, fine, but he was working on the concept of conscience. You cannot break your conscience. You're better off dead. And Paul is saying, gentlemen, no matter how free you think you are, have you ever considered the fact some other, you're going to lead some other people into dangerous territory. So it's fine with you to teach them to develop a strong conscience. What's not fine is that before they get the strong conscience, you're tempting them to violate their weak conscience. That's not good. You do not want to teach your children or yourselves or your friends, certainly not your brothers in Christ, to violate their consciences. You want to teach that conscience, but you don't want to tempt it to be violated. Now sometimes consciences can be so seared and so evil that you have to insist that people violate their own conscience because their consciences are so corrupt. Fine. But in the church, normally, you're dealing with weak and strong consciences, and that's how we deal with each other. You'll notice from the Westminster Confession of Faith I put here that God alone is Lord of the conscience. And He's left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in any way contrary to the Word. So, look... My conscience is bound to the Word. There are lots of ethical injunctions in the Word. Please don't give me your additional injunctions. I've got enough of them here in the Bible to keep. And I don't want you adding to it. So it's very annoying when a weak conscience tries to add rules to a, to a strong conscience. But it's not just annoying. It's deadly when a strong conscience seeks to tempt the weak conscience uh, to violate uh, their conscience. Now, let's turn to chapter 9. And here, 
Paul uses himself as an example. In Roman numeral 2, we're simply saying, uh, we must emulate the apostle. So, first of all, love triumphs over knowledge. So we have to be sure that our theological, ethical knowledge is suffused with brotherly love. Secondly, let's look to the apostle as an example. Now, there's more to this chapter 9 than Paul just using himself as an example. Here's what scholars are suggesting the debate was over. The guys who felt free to go into these religious festivals saying that, hey, our conscience is clear, we know that we're not worshiping other gods, they don't even exist, and food doesn't matter, we all know that. And Paul is then challenging them here, yeah, but you've forgotten your brother. And he's going to say to them later, you shouldn't go to those religious festivals on worship grounds. But even before he gets to that point, regardless of that, on attempting someone to violate his conscience, you've got a ground. For, let, me, let, me, let me back up here just a minute. Let, let's take, for example, uh, this wouldn't be quite parallel, but it's the best I can do. Uh, Sandy, do you want to, why don't you go down to the casinos and see if you can make a few bucks? Uh, technically, there's nothing in the Bible that says I can't go to a casino or enjoy some of the free meals they offer. But let me tell you something. There ain't no way I'm going to that casino. One person that I would see there, one 30-year-old who's struggling with gambling and sees me in a casino, that, that would absolutely break my heart. I can't, I can't conceive of how depressing that would be that I would have led one 30-year-old struggling with gambling to destroy his home and his, his finances because he saw me there and was further encouraged to do something that would destroy him. So I'm just not going to be found there. I don't even want to be around the place. If I did go, it would be an investigative journey, and about six of you are going with me. And so anybody who sees me enter knows I'm entering with a posse, and they all know you're Christians, and they know why I'm there. That's the only way I could go. Because it's not a matter of whether I, I personally feel free. Now, if I'm in Las Vegas, I'm still not going to go because half of you all are over there. <laughs> But let's say that I'm in the French Riviera. Imagine such a thing. And nobody's there I know. I don't have any problem going into a casino, except that I'm supporting a business that rips people off. And this business down here in Mississippi rips people off. They send buses up here to our urban neighborhoods to pick up people who just got their checks from the government. And they get those checks cashed, take them down to Tunica, take all their money, and then drop them off back in their neighborhood that night. I hate that business. It rips off people who can't add and subtract, who have no hope for tomorrow, so they're trying to get a quick gain at the casino, so they have no hope. They, they can't do math, and they have no hope, and they have an addiction. Those are the kinds of people they rip off. I don't want anything to do with that business. But let's just assume that I didn't have that feeling. I could go myself. But the larger question is, what, what, what's my agenda in this world? Is it to advance the kingdom of God and to build up the church? Or is it to go have a little fun? It's obviously the former. And that's the same with you. That's your agenda. So just stick to your agenda. Whatever that agenda dictates, do that. Whether you're on vacation or you're on your job or wherever you are. That's what the apostle is saying. Now, on chapter 9, here's the debate, I think. It seems as though they are saying to Paul, Paul, we got your first letter. But now, honestly, 
we have some questions also about your apostolic authority. Not real sure what authority you have to be saying the things you're having. And we'll just tell you why. Number one, anybody who comes in here and preaches to us, all these philosophers from different perspectives, they all take money from us. And you know the old saying, it's worth what you pay it, pay for. And we're not paying you anything, so it must not be worth much. That's the first argument. The second one is, Paul, we think we've seen you talk out of both sides of your mouth. Sometimes you act like a Jew, and sometimes you act like a Gentile. And it seems a little hypocritical to us. So we're not quite sure exactly what you do believe, and we're not quite sure if you have the authority to tell us what we're supposed to believe and do. That seems to be a little bit of what they're getting. Now, in 2 Corinthians, there's no doubt. You'll see it. Paul is in a life-and-death struggle for apostolic authority. And if they lose his apostolic authority, they lose the Word of God. That's his concern. It seems to be raising its head here early with the Corinthians. And that's the reason that chapter 9, you're going to see, is not just, well, let me just give you an illustration of my own life. No, it's Paul is, he is vigorously arguing for his practice being the legitimate gospel practice. Now let's look at it, chapter 9. Paul says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord, which you know is one of the requirements of an apostle? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my, look at this word, defense. Defense against whom? Against them. And the quotes they're giving to him about what people are saying about him. He says, this is my apology or my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does He not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake. Because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? that in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge. 
so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might, I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might, I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. That I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak. That I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. That I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run? but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Well, the Apostle Paul is saying, you've completely misunderstood my lifestyle. You've completely misinterpreted my actions. Somehow you've missed the gospel agenda that drives everything I'm doing. And the only reason you could have missed it is that you don't have a gospel agenda in your own life. So you had no way of interpreting me you interpreted me as though I had the same agenda you've got. Which is to advance your own pleasure, your own comfort, your own financial aspirations, your own social climbing. So you projected all those motives on me and interpreted the things I'm doing as though it was to fulfill the motives you've got in your life. I'm telling you something. I've got a gospel agenda and that's what I'm trying to get you to have. And let that drive all of your ethical practices, all of your worship practices, all of the decisions you make about what you can and should do in the culture and where you have to stand up and be different. Let the gospel agenda drive it. So it's with passion here. He's not just defending himself, but realizing that in the defense of his own practice, he's challenging their misunderstanding of how to live life and what it's all about. So let's look at it for just a moment. He says, first of all, we do have moral rights. Paul has them. He has the right to food and drink. He has the right to be married if he wishes. The apostles, some of the apostles were married. Paul says, I have a right to do that. I'm not single because I think that I'm bound to be single morally, have no right to be married. And I'm sure there are many times in lonely nights Paul wished he had a wife to write him a letter and tell him how much she loved him. I'm sure he thought of those things. He said, I have a right to that. And he says, this issue of remuneration that you're raising, I have a right to remuneration. And let me tell you why. It's in the Scriptures. That the ox who treads out the grain should be able to eat himself. You think he's just talking about animals? No, even in Leviticus, Paul says, God has in mind humans that there's a, such a thing as called justice. And let me say to you, in your churches, you should be sure that your pastors are being paid well. Now, if you're a member of Second Presbyterian, let me just tell you, you can rest at ease. Your pastors are paid well. If you're not, 
at Second Presbyterian and you don't know how your pastors are being taken care of, at least ask somebody in the personnel committee if you've got a large church or someone on your governance board in a smaller church, just ask them, are we really paying our pastors well enough so that they can live without constraint and worry and anxiety so they can preach the gospel? Paul says, if the churches and the people in the community have benefited spiritually from teachers, then those teachers need to be fed and benefit materially. Paul says, I have a right to that. It's a right in the gospel. It's a moral right to claim that. Now, there are reasons why he didn't do it with Corinthians. I suggest it's because of their immaturity. And in the Christian mission, when we go into an imma- in a first-generation church plant with immature people, you have to wait until they mature before they should be free to support their own pastor. Otherwise, they misinterpret and they think that he's preaching in order to get paid rather than that they're paying him in order that they continue to enjoy his preaching. So you have to wait until a group matures. And I think First Corinthians, the Corinthians weren't mature. But Paul says, verses 15 through 27, I have all these rights, but I'd prefer bragging rights to moral rights. You say bragging rights? Yeah. I want to boast before the Lord. I want to do something that really is an honor to Him. I want to be able to have something to say, Lord, here, I've given this to you. And you know what I did? I didn't take any of your money. That's the reason I didn't take your money. Because I wanted to be sure that everybody here knew the gospel is free. Free of charge. And that's the reason that when you go to a pastor for counseling, you don't get a bill the next week like you would from a psychological counselor whom you owe the $100 to. But a pastoral counselor doesn't charge you $100. Why? The gospel is free. Now the church takes the responsibility to support him. But when you go to him for service, he doesn't charge you for services rendered. Why? The gospel's free. And so, even if someone does a wedding or a funeral and you want to give them a gift, fine, we call it an honorarium, but it's not a fee because the gospel's free. And Paul is saying, we do not want the gospel to be encumbered in any way. That's the reason I've done that. You see how the, Paul, the Apostle Paul is saying, look at my life. Why don't you live it the same way? Be sure that you're not in any way encumbering the advancement of the kingdom. So we boast not of presenting the gospel. Why? Because it's an obligation, Paul says. Jeremiah says it. His heart is burning with this message. Paul says, woe to me if I don't preach. I'm under obligation to preach. Whether you pay me or not, till I draw my last breath. And you're obligated too if you're a believer. You're obligated to draw your last breath to present the gospel to those where you have an opportunity to do so. To encourage people by, by praying for them and encouraging them in the ways of the Lord. That's the way you're to use your life. You're under obligation. You don't boast about that. So what does he boast about? He says because he freely presents the gospel. Here, Paul can take real pleasure in the fact that he's rendering service to the Lord by sacrificing in order to present the gospel. He boasts about that. And why does he boast? Because it's the Lord doing it in in and through him. He said, what then is my reward? My reward is that I may present the gospel free of charge. And actually, that is his reward. It's not only what he boasts about, it's his reward. He boasts in Christ, and his reward is he gets to preach it for free and give it away to people. The most precious gift in the universe, you get to give away free. There's something to boast about. Hey, you know, I'm giving away a gazillion dollars. Even more than a gazillion dollars. Just giving it away to anybody who wants it. 
There's something to boast about. And Paul says, that's the reason that to the Jew I become a Jew, to the Greek I become a Greek, and I become all things to all men that by some way, measure, I might win some. So verses 19-22, through 22, look that we serve others. He said, I'm, I am, though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. So we are those who accommodate other people. Our lifestyles are not just what we're ethically free to do ourselves. It's our lifestyle is ordered by what is going to be to the greatest benefit spiritually the people around me. And secondly, B, we serve the gospel. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. So we have one agenda. It's the gospel agenda. And then thirdly, we not only serve others and serve the gospel, we serve vigorously. He says, look, we're all like athletes. You know how athletes operate. They train and they run hard to win the prize. And he said, look, don't just dilly-dally around. Don't just kind of get in on the kingdom and then just kind of float your way through. Be athletic about it. Yeah, you have rights to do all kinds of things. Why don't you surrender some of your rights in order to advance the interests of other people and be downright athletic about it? And Paul says, look, I don't want to be in this business and be preaching to other people And there I get at the end, and I myself am disqualified because I never really embraced the gospel myself. So Paul is saying this is what it means to embrace the gospel. So that's the apostolic example. And he's saying that's the reason that I'm saying to you guys who are not apostles, watch what you do in involving yourselves in all kinds of cultural activities. We'll talk later about whether it really does contradict your Christian worship. But for now, would you at least consider the idea that you're compromising other people's spiritual lives by your behavior? If you, have, if you like to drink a beer every once in a while, but you're serving youth, probably the best thing is take the beer out of the refrigerator. If you have kids at home, look, your job is to have a kid-friendly home. So the way that you live life is not based on what adults want. You now have kids there. So you change your whole lifestyle. If you haven't done that, you haven't entered into what it means to be a Christian parent. You change your whole lifestyle to be a Christian parent. And what Paul is saying is, if you're thinking about your friends at work and in this community and in society, you're changing your whole lifestyle, everything you do, in order to reach the weak. That's what the Christian does. That's the challenge for us. And so Paul is saying, look, your knowledge may be true, but you left out love. So filter all your knowledge through the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, thank You for the great calling of the Gospel so that we serve others, we serve the Gospel, and we serve vigorously because of the greatness of what Christ has done for us in the Gospel and the great privilege, the reward of being able to set forward Jesus Christ in the Gospel free of charge. Help us now as we go to be men whose lives are ordered from love. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.